2: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other
3: special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's
4: arcpodnetcom slash members. Ancient
2: tools and burials,
4: plants
3: and seeds, Neanderthals. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 78. I'm your host, Sarah Head. And I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. And today we're joined by Dr. Donna Yates from the University of Glasgow. Some of her best-known work is on the Trafficking Culture blog, where she discusses the illegal antiquities trade. She's here to discuss the recent Hobby Lobby decision where the federal authorities have fined the company $3 million for their illegal importation of antiquities from the Middle East. Dr. Yates also talks to us about the illegal antiquities trade and about the laws that are set up in the hopes of protecting antiquities across the globe. Get ready to think critically.
4: You will see, are a staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't. don't Everyone, and
3: welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Head, and I'm joined today by Ken Fader and Jeb Card. How's it going, guys? It's Life's a Carnival, Sarah. Um, Everything's good. Ken just had a big life event, didn't he? Well, yes.
0: Um, so now I have a 31 year old son, a 24 year old son, and a 12 day old daughter. So <laughs> congratulations, so it's kind of, congratulations. Yeah, you know, hey, thanks, thanks. It's been, you know, I, apparently I'm a breeder, Um but <laughs> little Molly, we love her. She's she's kind of she's a delightful little kid, and um, awesome. so and again, if you hear a baby crying in the background, I'm just going to
3: blame it on Jeb.
5: Yeah, that seems that seems to be how everything goes. So it's all fair. And that's my update. So let's get to the matter at hand. Okay.
3: And today we're joined by special guest Donnie Yates out of the University of Glasgow. How's it going? It's going well. I'm happy to be here to talk about this.
2: And thank you so much.
3: Yeah, thank you so
0: much for agreeing to to do this. Really appreciate
3: it. Yeah, Donna's going to be here to talk to us about uh, the illegal antiquities trade and the recent Hobby Lobby decisions that have been handed down. Uh, it's like This is like a two-year-old case that's been in the news off and on. Um, Donna, can you give us a little background on yourself, and then we'll jump right into the topic? Yeah, um,
2: so I am an archaeologist, and I start off by saying that uh, because I'm an archaeologist in a criminology department. So I'm at the Scottish Center for Crime and Justice Research at the University of Glasgow. And I am a lecturer in antiquities trafficking and art crime. Uh, I'm a founding member of the Trafficking Culture Project. And for the past five or so years, we've been focusing in on the transnational illicit trade in cultural objects, usually from an archaeological standpoint, but kind of bringing in these criminological ideas to understand it better. I think me. I
5: have probably talked on the show previously about traffickingculture.org, which is the website for that, because it's an astonishingly useful resource. I use it heavily in my classes, as well as other other purposes. I assign readings from it. Uh, I assign to my students, and I've also cited your uh, your, dis- your discussion of what could be lost with the... Because you started life to some degree kind of working on, on my archaeology. Absolutely. Like the- your, your your piece on the Buena Vista del Cayo vase and all that could be lost because I recently did a thing with a hieroglyphic bottle in El Salvador, which has some vague parallels. And I also absolutely love the name and I'd love you to explain the name of this, one of your blogs, which is Anonymous Swiss Collector. What does yeah. that mean?
3: <laughs> well, the,
2: the original title was a full property of an anonymous Swiss oh. collector. But I've, I've streamlined it into something that's still quite long. But um, when I was just finishing my PhD, I felt like I had a lot more to say about the looting and trafficking of antiquities, the antiquities market. But thankfully, I got a job afterwards, so I can say <laughs> it to <through>, uh, academic <laughs> publications. But right then, in that in-between um, stage, I decided to start a blog. And there's kind of this trope in antiquities sales. And if you look at any auction catalog of antiquities, be it Maya antiquities, Greek antiquities, Indian antiquities, you see the provenance or ownership history of these antiquities as listed as very opaque. So mm-hmm. they'll say things like uh, "property of an American collector" or "property from a private collector" or a "collection." I mean, or, and, and, and you're not paraphrasing; often,
5: like it would literally say, literally like an say American collector.
2: Right, and yeah. then one of the most the, the the most common tropes is property of an anonymous Swiss collector. <laughs> And I, I, during my master's, I did my, my master's research on um, South American antiquities in, in uh, major auction catalogs. And I typed, property of anonymous Swiss collector so many times that um, <laughs> I decided that was, that was the name of my blog. So it's oh, kind it, of a way of, of hiding name. the history of antiquities yeah. when they're in sale. But it's giving a nod to the idea that there might be a past for the antiquities without actually revealing that past.
1: Yeah. And often
2: these anonymous Swiss collectors didn't actually exist. Property right. of an anonymous Swiss collector, an old family collection, is actually pretty much recently out of the ground. Yeah. Wow. No,
5: I've I have been using that as kind of a code phrase in my class when we're talking about museums, talking about collectors and looting and all these problems. It's like, oh, where's it from? The Anonymous Swiss collector. When? Uh, one or two years before the laws came
3: in. Exactly. <laughs> So just right before the UNESCO convention,
5: <laughs> exactly 1968, 69, whatever. Yeah. Can you
3: give us Can you give us a little bit of background on these laws that this anonymous Swiss collector is trying to skirt? Well, it's different for every
2: country, so every country has uh, slightly different laws when it comes to antiquities. But one of the big ones is the UNESCO convention, not really a law, but um, the the it's like a framework, right? It's a framework. But the year 1970 kind of draws a line in the sand for some mm-hmm. people. Um, after the point where UNESCO gets involved and says this is a major issue, the trafficking of antiquities is wrong, we need to do something better, there's, there's kind of no way anybody can say they didn't know about it. There's, there's no way anybody can say I had no idea that trafficking of antiquities was an issue. Um, so 1970 is that line. It's important to remember that's not a legal line. You're not actually necessarily breaking any laws if you uh, bought an antiquity after 1970, but it's, it's kind of this moral line that's been adopted, both in the trade and, and kind of in, among some academics. But um, it depends on the country otherwise. Um, if, if, say, it was 1906 in Bolivia, when Bolivia claimed all archaeological objects as property of the state, you might want to project things before 1906. It's a bit hmm. far back. Bolivia was a bit earlier than other countries. But for some countries, it might be 1950. Um, India is either 1972 or 73, or it might be 1970. can't remember. But you'd place everything before that date, whatever the relevant date was.
5: And the UNESCO Charter, we, we actually talked about this in our episode on the executive order in the United States about the American government the federal government's antiquities act we talked a bit about while it wasn't directly related since we're talking about all the sort of laws in the u.s we talked about the unesco charter and how what it's really doing is governing relations between states yes. with memoranda of understanding so bolivia can be like look this is something you is illegal to be doing in 1906 and if once you got to new orleans in 1907 they're like eh, we don't care the unesco is basically making signatories care and making, yeah. making them make, make agreements.
2: It's facilitating those relationships between states. Yeah. It, it, it is very state-to-state based, which is positive because there's an international framework for that negative if you're talking about objects that maybe aren't being claimed by states, maybe they're being claimed by indigenous groups within the state, mm-hmm. and states are involved, but
1: it, it is this kind of state-to-state thing. It, it's kind of forcing this discussion to happen.
5: So the... Re- the reason we asked you to come on – I mean we've been wanting you to be on the show for a while because this concept – we we deal a lot, you know, archaeological fantasies and, you know, haunted objects and all of that. People believing these things. And I've written a lot about how – or I'm going to be writing a lot once it comes out – about how when you erase real histories, other ones rush in and they often reflect Western fantasies. If you go back to our okay. Curse episode. You'll find that. But the reason we asked you on – right now, this made perfect sense, was there's been a lot of recent news about – that the United States Department of Justice made a settlement with Hobby Lobby, the company Hobby Lobby. Um, And this is not new. The settlement's new, but the case is not new. And you and others of trafficking culture have written about this. Can you tell us a bit more about what our listeners need to know?
2: Okay. Well, the the basic background of this case is uh, the... Uh, A fellow named Green, who is the multi-billionaire owner of Hobby Lobby, the U.S.-based craft store, um, is also uh, hes a very prominent evangelical Christian, and he has a strong collecting interest in items from the Holy Land, so anything from the world of the Bible. So not necessarily directly biblical things, but things from the the general sphere of the Bible. Southwest
5: Asia, Egypt, basically. Exactly. uh, Eastern Mediterranean.
3: I have a quick question, though. Is his collecting in and and of itself an illegal uh, activity or just the way he was maybe going about it was the illegal part of this?
2: So collecting antiquities in itself is not illegal. It is uh, in the United States, for example, it's perfectly legal to own antiquities. They just can't be stolen property, Gotcha. and they can't be property that has been brought into the United States in an illegal manner, and it can't be property that's subject to any sort of international sanction. Mm. So in this case, we're dealing with all three, potentially. Gotcha. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, so it is, it is in the United States to buy, sell, and own antiquities that don't violate those rules. Whether we think that's ethical or not, well, that's a different story.
0: Um, A question question that I'd like to um, add right now is, this guy's collection proclivities, are are these about personal acquisition so he can have them in his basement? Or is there some goal in terms of of exhibiting these artifacts?
2: Well, there seems to be a bit of both. So the other thing that Green is known for is he's the force behind this uh, soon to be opened Museum of the Bible in DC. Ah. And yes,
1: I've so seen that I going on. I
5: think August. I think I want to say August or September or something like oh, that. Oh, seriously? Right? Yeah.
2: No, yeah, it's yeah, real. It's a real thing. I think is really soon, like in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I, I, I I could be wrong. I think it's open to the public around um, November. I think the grand opening okay.
3: is okay. in the next couple of weeks. And it weeks. is not part of so, the Smithsonian at all. It no, is its no, own no, thing. No.
5: God no. Right. there a, it's are it's there are a number museum. of private museums in right. DC
3: yeah.
2: as
5: long yeah and this is one of those yeah,
2: yeah. It's one of those private museums and it, it does have a, a evangelical focus and component but another side of it is that, that part of the vision or at least the stated vision was that this was going to become a center of search for archaeological objects mm-hmm. Holy Land. The problem of course is that, that um, to, to outfit an entire museum currently, you don't have the, in quotation marks, benefit of empire, conquest, or, or any of the, the dubious past activities that filled uh, major world museums before. Right. You have to get this stuff from somewhere, and at least one source of these objects is the illicit market, um, whether they directly engage with the, the obviously illicit market or, not, or if they're just buying unprovenanced antiquities. But of course, the antiquities have to come from somewhere. Correct
5: me if I'm wrong, but – so like I said, the settlement is the news. This has been yeah. going on for several years. And if I remember correctly, there were press announcements – again, if I am wrong, I apologize. There were press announcements about the Museum of the Bible where they're like, we're going to – because they made some deal here, some deal here. And you probably know much more about this, so I'm not going to talk about it. But where they were well, like, we're going, <laughs> to, we're going to have like several numbers or dollars worth or something of artifacts – and literally, people started going. And you're gonna do the in, in two years. And you're gonna do that. How exactly, exactly?
2: Yeah. And that's when
5: people started looking at them a little more carefully. Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I, I I those kind of press releases or discussions I I kind of heard around
3: the antiquities trafficking water cooler. Um, <laughs> this is an <laughs> interesting it, it, water cooler. I'm intrigued.
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting one. It's a very murky water cooler. <laughs> right. Very murky. That
5: sounds very unappetizing. Right. The way you just
2: <laughs> it's put just, <laughs> cups of mud. <laughs> <laughs> terrible.
5: but appropriate but appropriate
2: but no yeah so um they, they 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 started making a big public splash about this saying that this is going to be this great institution this public institution this research institution and exactly like you said the the various people who are experts both in material just uh actual archaeologists who work right. in this region as well as those of us who watched the illicit trade we all went wait a minute so that, that's that's impossible. How how are you going to do that? How is that possible? So, as you said, this 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 is a topic that's been coming up for a couple years now since they made these announcements. Because all of us have said, well, how you think you're going to do that? So they've they've received a lot of uh, criticism, both publicly and privately, about their their ability to do this. And I know that they've they've made certain agreements with some countries about displaying some objects, and they've. They have like loan agreements from private collections, right. which doesn't necessarily mean those collections are clean. <laughs> but also the the purchasing of antiquities from a region that, for the past you know couple of decades, has been in a state of extreme upheaval. Well, it's it's not looking pretty good. So they, they started getting some some decent criticism and. Uh, some strong advice to stay away
5: from it. Before we get to the purchase, which I think is going to be a lot of what we talk about, uh, given what's happened, you mentioned agreements. And actually, if you could clarify something for me, when people started talking about some of these agreements, I heard criticisms of this. And again, I am, I am just paraphrasing what people are saying, but basically people almost referring to this as the return of the partition system. One, could you could you tell our audience what, uh, what the part may be better than I can? What the partition system is or was, and two are are those accurate or reasonable criticisms, or or is it an appropriate analogy?
2: Well, the the partition system or the partage was.
5: Uh, I, I didn't so know there's another word.
2: But both of them partage. So okay. fancy. You, you, partage. You partage. We're very educated. Yeah. Um, so so basically, in, in in the kind of the earlier periods of of archaeology in. West Asia, in Egypt, in that region, um, and also some other places as well, uh, there would be agreements um, struck between the excavators or whatever organization or museum that they worked for and the government that was issuing permits to essentially divide the antiquities that were found between them. So if you were, say, circling this Petri, rolling into Egypt, um, you would have an agreement with whoever was in charge of Egypt at the time that meant that um, Egypt kept some percentage of the fines, and um, Petrie's organization, so at times various museums and so on, uh, kept a portion of the, the objects. And those objects legally left Egypt and mm-hmm. um, uh, sometimes controversially, I should say, into the market and so on and so forth. So, so that, that is this, that, that, that's, um, when the large museums, uh, gained collections of archaeologically excavated objects and those created teaching collections at universities. And a lot of people see that as a very positive sim- uh, system where, uh, the organizations that front these antique, these, uh, archaeological digs get something in return. However, in many cases, these were colonial governments. They were not governments that, rec- that, that represented the people. Um, the, the, the power imbalance was not right. And none of this works in law anymore after many of these governments have declared ownership of all these objects. They can't actually just get rid of them or give them away. So that's I, that's, I, the, I, that's the partition system, the partage system. That yeah, this generally
5: we, doesn't you know, exist anymore, right?
2: No, I, I can't yeah. think of anywhere that that, that would yeah. exist anymore. I, I, I as, as an archaeologist, everywhere I've worked, would just think we were crazy no. if you rolled into no. the Ministry of Culture and said, you know, I think I'm going to be taking half of these. <laughs> Let's well, work that out. And the, their response would be, is, you're lucky you have a permit to be here. <laughs> Go write your it's... academic papers. That's what you get. But, well, isn't it
0: be- before before the discovery of Tut's tomb, didn't Carnarvon? and and carter and the egyptian government have an agreement like that
2: yeah yeah and and that there are a number of kind of carter excavated objects out of egypt but kind of the tut's tomb thing egypt kind of put some big right. breaks on that line yeah
5: that was kind of the catalyst for the change yeah. sure, sure.
1: Yeah.
3: so did did mr green try to say that he had this kind of agreement and that's how he was getting his artifacts or is this just a criticism that was leveled at him I think, I think I I hadn't heard this, but this sounds like a criticism
2: that would be leveled at him.
3: That, um, that this, it it kind of
2: relates to this argument that, um, taking antiquities off the market saves them and at least they're in a museum. Right. You know, it, it, and this also, there's a, a constant, uh, argument that, well, it's good that we're spreading antiquities around throughout the world. And that, that's coming out of this partage idea, this, this partitioning of antiquities idea. So this, this argument that, um, or, or this assertion in, in the build-up of the Museum of the Bible that we're bringing these these biblical artifacts to uh, a, a non-Middle Eastern, not-worn-torn situation so everybody can study them. Well, it, it is sounding a lot like this kind of semi-colonial earlier period of archaeology right. right. where the balance of power was swayed in one direction right. and, and the other side isn't really agreeing to it. Uh, it
5: We talked a lot about this idea of civilization and bringing things to the rest of the world in our episode with Nathan French a few weeks ago on Islamic State where you, again, a lot of the same words and a lot of the same kind of rhetoric is something we see today as a reaction or using excuse of or whatever Islamic State and things were happening 100 years ago.
3: Right, and it it implies that local groups, I mean again, it's implying local groups can't take care of their own stuff so here, give it to us, we can do such a better job.
0: I can't imagine that this green fellow is sitting in front of his computer um, scouring eBay sites for buying stuff. Does he have experts, does he have people in his employ who are going out there and finding these collections that will be appropriate or not for his his uh, museum
5: well ken i think that would be a fantastic thing so i I think we do have to go to break i think that'd be a fantastic question because some of that i believe is covered either in the discussion of the settlement or in some of the news coverage around it because there actually are some particulars to that okay so why don't we start start up with that
0: after the
3: break yeah let's go to break real quick and when we come back we will discuss where these wonderful items are coming from
4: Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Hey
3: everyone, we are back and we are still, still talking with Donnie Yates about the antiquities trade and more specifically Hobby Lobby. And we hit on a really interesting thing before we went to break there.
5: Yeah, I had cut off Ken because Ken had asked a question that I think it was going to take a little bit of time and kind of gets to the heart of a lot of this. He had asked, you know, how do how did this happen? Like, were they sending their own agents into the field, or was it like, right, exactly, you know, you, you, did they go to a strip mall in you know, <laughs> so like legal like,
3: antiquity strip mall chi, in
5: Cairo, or, or,
3: or it was <laughs> like,
5: you know, it's right, it's right next to the to the e cig's place and like the tattoo parlors, <laughs> yes. or is, is that how this works, or? You and know, it's antiquities
2: a, while you wait. Yeah, exactly.
5: <laughs> so, so, yeah, so we
1: online. actually know
5: Absolutely. some. Of, we actually know some of the mechanisms that went down in these deals. So, what what's going on?
2: Well, um, in this case, um, it, it's similar to a lot of cases. No, well, Green is probably not browsing eBay on his phone at night. <laughs> That's what he does in his spare time. Um, but he he almost certainly has. Um, some degree of agents that that work for him in certain ways he may have a personal relationship with certain dealers he almost certainly does but his collection does have hired curators for example i know this two truth. i've met one of them um there 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 are people that he has hired that, that at least deal with the collection can provide advice and to some degree, may have been serving as as some sort of pre buyer or, or or in that kind of capacity. And these are people um, with knowledge of antiquities. Yeah, these, these are these are people who are hired curators. They're they're experts in mm-hmm. in the field. You or I might not particularly see ourselves working for a private collector of antiquities for ethical reasons. Um, other people don't quite see it that way. They're still uh, perfectly well trained. Like On that, that kind of professional background, of- okay. Exactly, but on the other side of this, in of particularly the acquisition we're talking about, as well as some other acquisitions, um, the, the 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 paperwork that that came out of this case clearly indicates that Green was um, discussing this issue with high-end independent experts, so people who uh, he didn't employ full time, who didn't that didn't have to make him happy because their jobs may have depended on it. And at least one of the people that he spoke to was, uh, Professor Patty Gerstenblatt, and I I can say that it's her because her name has been revealed in in the news. Mm -hmm. Um, who is a, a professor of law at DePaul University and also has a Ph.D. in Middle Eastern archaeology. And she is the, the, for, the former head of the State Department's Cultural Property Advisory Committee. So this is the committee that um, decides which bilateral antiquities agreements the United States um, enters into under the UNESCO Convention. So when we're talking about experts, this is the highest possible expert that he could be talking about. Absolutely. Patty like Ursula so. is, is the top here. And, and, um, she has very publicly stated that, um, he, that the, the green collection came to her in a formal capacity, asked about this particular collection, um, whether it was dodgy, whether they should go through with it. And she said that she, I think the quote is, through the book at him with, how bad of an idea this is oh, God. Okay. and they still proceeded with the the purchase anyway so they they were asking a question so they were they were pretty well warned they were so well warned. i can't even imagine a better a better person to talk about this that you have that, okay. this absolute top expert saying um both as an archaeologist both as a lawyer and as somebody who's engaging in the highest levels of the u.s.'s um uh, import and export regulation around antiquity saying don't do this and then right. you make the other decision exactly. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, it, would
5: be, it would be fascinating if she ever got a drink with sally yates but i digress <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, and listen, i'd, I'd the, like to hang out with
3: those two that'd be a fun
1: conversation point,
2: one of
0: one of the hobby lobby's lawyers in fact said well you know we're new at this so we're forgive us for our naivete and in essence professing ignorance
3: I'm pretty sure that's how
5: law works, isn't it? Isn't that how law works? You mean they lie?
3: Is yeah, it, I I'm pretty sure yeah, it says ignorance people. of the law is not defense against the law somewhere. What? Somewhere.
2: It, it, but then yeah. again, you can't even say that they were ignorant of the law because it right, right, had not at that point. I <laughs> top expert. At least one probably others, but at least one of the the highest right. rung telling you. Mm.
5: Maybe their attention had slipped. You don't know. Maybe yeah. like maybe yeah. they, they were re- they were really into watching House of Cards at that point or something. <laughs> a, yeah. something. a squirrel, a
3: squirrel ran
0: <laughs> through something. the room. There's squirrel, shiny <laughs> off in the corner, and they were looking at that while while she
1: was telling yeah. them this is not a good idea.
2: Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, and while well, they were filling out the the false customs declarations, <sighs> and well, oh, cool. so it's, it's 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 one of those things where where again they they do have people. Um, the, the Greens are so fabulously wealthy; they, they're multi-billionaires. They they have the ability to hire people to help them out. They they have curators on the payroll. They did seek out advice from lawyers, from
3: experts. They just chose not to follow that advice. And so, why what did they even today. look for that information? Then, I mean, if they were, or were they just like trying to figure out how much of the law they were going to end up breaking, or were they hoping that? <laughs> I mean, maybe they were hoping that like they weren't actually going to be breaking the law. And then people are like, no, this is a bad idea. And then they're like, eh, whatever. Yeah.
5: I would bet that's it. Like they just mm-hmm. didn't yeah, think yeah. they were
3: going to be breaking it, the law at
5: all.
2: Yeah. I mean, if if you start out with a situation where you, whoever's trying to sell this stuff to you is telling you, oh, it's fine. Oh, it's fine. Oh, it's fine. Um, they they probably were hoping for some sort of positive um, response. Because in a in the sense, the, the buying of illicit antiquities is a quick crime, I'm sorry to say. Um, it's it's very difficult to make antiquities cases stick. It's very difficult to prove that something was stolen from a particular country because of course ancient borders are different than modern ones. Prove it came from Iraq and not uh, Syria, for example. All of right. this stuff is very difficult. So for the most part, if they've been by antiquities, if they have friends who buy antiquities, if they're in this kind of circle, they're being told, well, you know, whatever the experts may say, it's really low risk for you. Mm-hmm. And then in instead. It was low risk for them. Um, so the thing that they really messed up on in this case is that they broke U.S. law by filing a false customs claim. So, so the false, it, it,
5: Can we talk more about that specifically?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So what what happened was they, they imported these items into the U.S. Um, in an in a odd roundabout way. And one of, one of the odd roundabout ways they did it is that they, they didn't declare that they had, what, 5,000 Iraqi antiquities. Coming to the United States, um, the customs declaration form said that they had tile samples. Yeah, ceramic tiles. So <laughs> <that's, that's laughs>
3: yeah. And they and they didn't Why? ship it to their houses. <laughs> and, that's a violation of U.S. law, right? And they weren't yeah. shipping like, them well, to the well, house yeah. either. They were shipping them to their stores, oh. right? Well,
5: well, that's, that's where you'd exactly. have the ceramic tile samples.
2: Well, exactly. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't. It wasn't, as far as I know. Again, and and we'll have to to look at the exact paperwork right, to see if that's the case. But that this this was being. Um, imported under the auspices of Hobby Lobby, so their business, yeah. not yeah. as am, you know, Mister Missus Green. You know, right? I it's,
5: am, it's- uh, I have the actual. So first of all, our audience wants to look at this. I am looking at the Justice Department of the United States's um announcement on this. Uh, I think it's it's dated uh five July twenty seventeen for immediate releases title if you want to Google it. United States files civil action to forfeit thousands of ancient Iraqi artifacts imported by Hobby Lobby. Now, this is their press release. This is basically announcing the settlement. In their words, this is the uh, this is from the Department of Justice. With Hobby Lobby's consent, a UAE United Arab Emirates based dealer shipped packages containing artifacts to three different corporate addresses in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Between one and three shipments arrived at a time without the required customs entry documentation being filed with uh, CBP, which is Customs and Border uh, Patrol, I believe, and bore shipping labels that falsely, again, this is the Department of Justice, I am quoted that falsely and misleadingly described their contents as, quote, ceramic tiles, unquote, or, quote, ceramic tiles, parenthesis, sample, unquote. After approximately 10 packages shipped in this manner received by Hobby Lobby and its affiliates, Customs and Border Patrol intercepted five shipments. And then there's there's more, but these were... Uh, no further ships were but when a package containing approximately1,000 clay bullae, which are for holding tokens uh, or related to uh, information technology from Mesopotamia uh, from the same purchase received by Hobby Lobby was shipped from an Israeli dealer and accompanied by a false declaration stating that the bullae's country of origin was Israel so that is from the
1: Department Ooh. of Justice
2: so there you go that's that, that's where there was the big mess up in their smuggling scheme so to speak they yeah. they were falsifying these 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 uh, Customs documents in hopes that the items wouldn't be opened. And
5: but these are clay created. objects.
2: Yeah, so, so I- they're kind I- of if like tiles. Op- exactly if nobody opens the the case, it feels about the right size. If if the customs agent who opens it up doesn't really know what they're looking at, <clears> they might say, "Okay, well, this is these no. are tiles." But but what what they did is they, they violated U.S. law by illegally importing um, objects. Well, but by falsely declaring their import which and means this is, that hmm? you move it out of a situation where you have to prove that this item is looted or stolen. You move it out of a situation where you have to prove that this left Iraq in violation of United Nations sanctions, and you moved it into this easy, easy place within right. the U.S. You've just yeah. violated straight out U.S. law. It would have been the same if you falsely declared a shipment of uh, whatever, yarn and knitting needles yeah. because it's Hobby so,
3: Lobby. You know? So here's the really serious question like, that I have. Hmm? If they hadn't falsely declared these things as tile samples and had just said, you know, Iraqi tablets or something, or told what it was, would they not be in trouble right
2: now? That is the scariest question. And the answer is maybe. God. It's, mm-hmm. it's made hard to get these to stick, these, these charges of antiquities being in the stick because of all of the burden of evidence you have. Come up with to prove that they were looted, to prove they were stolen, to prove they were trafficked, to prove they're Iraqi at all. Um, if, if they had declared it properly, well, who knows?
5: Yeah, and the funny part is, I think they may have tripped up because they were using an old smut technique. E. A. Yeah. Wallace Budge, the 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 keeper <laughs> of the of the British Museum's Egypt section in the late Victorian and early Edwardian period, over a century ago, he did the exact same thing. He moved human remains from Egypt to the United Kingdom, and he labeled them bone meal. Oh,
1: it's no. The, yes,
5: it is the exact same thing. So I almost wonder if they kind of over, over, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to speculate on motives.
2: Yeah, well, this is, this is something we've seen in a number of recent antiquities cases as well. There's been a big, ongoing, gigantic case about antiqu- uh, Indian antiquities, that centers around a New York-based dealer named Shubhash Kapoor, who has been on trial in India for the past, I don't know, seven years at this point. His trial is stalled because the case grows and grows and grows against more people. But he imported uh, stolen Indian idols into the United States, and they eventually ended up in Australia, quite a circuitous route, um, listing them as stone garden furniture. jeez Stone garden oh, furniture. Sure. But his, his, Which, didn't his didn't
5: get open. You know, open. if you put it in the garden, I guess that's <laughs> what it becomes. <laughs> but
2: they were actually made of bronze,
3: so they couldn't even oh. stone.
5: Oh, so uh, there we go.
3: So here's a question, though. <laughs> what, Since it's so terribly hard to prosecute these things, it seems like it's a very low-level risk to just simply declare them. So where is the benefit of trying to be deceptive like this? Or can Who we knows? speculate on that?
2: Yeah, the 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 question is, what is the benefit? I, I don't actually know. And m- again, maybe they're not so adept at uh, antiquity smuggling cases that they know that they're probably not going to face
3: charges otherwise. Maybe maybe they're just trying to be sneaky. You I feel know? kind of oh, bad saying <laughs> all this online. You know? It's like, hey, don't take that. Yeah. Don't take this away from no, their uh, saying that you should do that. Uh, no, yeah. no, certainly <laughs> they
1: know.
0: Certainly they know they're doing something wrong. Are, is the do we can we even speculate that their feeling is it's a there's a greater good involved here that yes yeah the, these these little laws that if that that apply to antiquities yes we are circumventing them we're skirting them but we're going to have this museum that will tell tell the story of the Bible and Donna that's before so you
5: more Donna, before you answer that I do want to make clear in it so I want to make this sort of as part of the backdrop before you answer that because I think it gets to this. Um, they paid a three million dollar fine to the United States government. That's my understanding. Something, Something like that.
3: Like that,
2: yeah.
5: Yeah, and, and they, they
2: they turned over the object.
5: That's that's where I was going with this, and the artifacts are being repatriated. So I just mm-hmm. I did want to put that in there. So anyway, that's because I because it, so, it gets to the cost and benefit.
2: Yeah, but I'm um, I'm glad you asked that question because um, I actually have some hot criminological
3: research that answers that <laughs> okay well
2: before
3: so part so of the work oh actually before we get into that let's uh let's go to break real quick i know it's early but let's go to break and when we get back you can tell us about this awesome hot evidence and i don't have to interrupt you in the middle of it <laughs> okay
4: Perfect. interested in archaeology Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe, rate and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show
3: everyone and we are back and we are still talking with Dr. Donnie Yates about the Illegal Antiquities Act and you were telling us that you have hot forensic evidence which i love forensic evidence so let's do this it's more criminalized so we're, we're a little bit less than forensic but
4: yeah.
2: um one, one the question was uh were, were the, the the greens were the hobby lobby folks were they trying to were they telling themselves that they were doing some something- Something for the benefit of humanity? Were they breaking the law? Right. It's the greater um, good argument. Right. The greater good. And, and what's quite interesting is, is that um, this is a, a, a strong bit of research in criminology. So in the 1950s, there there were two researchers, Sykes and Matzah, uh, moving into the 1960s, who were looking at a uh, youth crime, so just regular juvenile delinquent type crime, nothing to do with antiquities. And they noticed that um, the, the Kids who were committing crimes uh, had patterns of almost telling themselves stories that uh, made the the trauma of having committed a crime just a bit less. It kind of blunted this this kind of societal stigma inside their heads for committing the crime. So they called these neutralization techniques, and and these were certain ways that the the kids neutralized their actions, put them within a different context recontextualized them, and kind of explained away their behavior that is otherwise criminal. And um, some of the research that trafficking culture has been doing, particularly with um, my colleague Simon McKenzie, Professor Simon McKenzie, who is a criminologist, um, has been on how uh, collectors and dealers uh, engage in these same neutralization techniques. And one of the things that we see in dealers is this classic psych and Matt a neutralization technique of appealing to higher loyalties. And I think that's exactly mm. what you're getting at. It's this idea that yes, I'm breaking the law. Yes, I'm knowingly breaking the law. Yes, I am engaging in a dirty market. I'm buying antiquities straight out of a war zone. I know that it's a war zone. I've talked to the experts. They've told me not to do it, but I have a higher purpose. There are higher loyalties here. I am saving the objects and I'm putting them in a the museum. And of course, that, that is a very persuasive argument, both internally and externally, but it is a way of explaining away doing exactly what you want to do. It's, sure. it's, not, it's not usually the motivation for the action. It's a subsidiary uh, explanation for, for just right. kind of engaging in deviant behavior that you want right. to do. Yeah. I think that was definitely a part of it, appealing right. to higher loyalties.
5: And it, and I, and I and I I want to get into whether that's accurate because you know saying that you know well are are they saving these things of course all of these things are are coming out of the ground without provenance they're they're losing all their yeah. archaeological provenience um also whenever we're dealing with this sort of a situation this is where fakes get in uh i mean there have been okay. estimates that like very high percentages uh of things in museums and collections are fakes and often it's hard to tell without chemical testing or expert expert uh understanding even then um So all of that is a problem. Uh, So are things actually being saved with these kinds of activities?
2: Well, it depends on what you consider to be saving. Because if we're thinking about a conflict situation, say in Iraq, where you have artifacts in the ground, pretty much the best place for them is in the ground, just staying there. These aren't artifacts that are necessarily going to be destroyed otherwise. They're, They're just hanging out inside an archaeological site. But market demand, the fact that Somebody right. is going to buy this on the market end is what's causing the looting. So protection drops out, the economy falls, um, the place is in chaos. You only turn to archaeological looting because you can get a buck for it. So in a sense,
1: mm-hmm.
2: the, the worst has happened. The, the objects aren't being saved by the market. The, the market is the thing that's, that's right. threatening the objects. It's threatening the objects to threaten the archaeological context. Again, you can neutralize okay, it a bit more and say that oh, it's still on the it, it's it's on the market already. The looting's already happened. I'm going to save it from the market. But again, you're creating this demand. You're continuing right. the.
0: It confirms the fact that there is a demand for this. So let's dig more.
2: You,
5: you, dig you, more. You mentioned conflict uh, several times, and I think that's incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, and there's a couple of questions I have. The first one, though, I believe this has been published. I know it's been published. Actually, I've had students look at it, but I saw. A fantastic SAA paper by one of the I think one of the trafficking culture folks on uh, I think it's in Cambodia and how you had different sides of a conflict looting at different times can you talk about that case a little or that principle
2: yeah absolutely so this this is research done by my colleagues Simon McKinsey, um and Tess Davis
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, Tess in particular I've been working in Cambodia for about 10 years but um, the two of them paired up, an uh, archaeologist lawyer and a criminologist, and reconstructed some of the the main looting pathways um, out of Cambodia into Thailand and into the rest of the world. And yeah, it was, a lot of their research showed that as uh, uh, conflict hit in Cambodia, as different militarized groups moved around, as the Khmer Rouge grew in power, then retreated into the jungle as they held their areas. Uh, um, different types of looting occurred and different looting pathways occurred. And it, it was very much tied to this type of instability. And what they've seen in Cambodia as it's moved towards stability after the Khmer Rouge, after the 90s, um, looting's gone way down. It's, it's gotten significantly better. So looting is, is often very tied to just a loss of control. When there's control, um, there, there tends to be better monitoring.
5: I mean, the... The very first, if I remember correctly, the very first memorandum of understanding under the UNESCO Charter that the United States signed was, and I know this because we're there, uh, was with El Salvador during their civil war.
2: Yep, exactly.
5: Yeah. The other question because, I wanted. again,
2: to- it's, a, it's a time of sensitivity. It's it's, yeah. it's when things are most sensitive. Yeah.
5: The other question I wanted to ask in regards to conflict, specifically in the Hobby Lobby case, some of the news reports have been tying this into the much discussed in the public fear uh antiquities looting and destruction by Islamic State. And we just had Nathan French on about this. But a lot of the activities we're talking, I, I actually asked him about this the other day. A lot of the activities we're talking about with the Hobby Lobby case are before sort of the declaration of a caliphate by Islamic State. On the other hand, the roots of the various organizations that become Islamic State go back before. Do we have any idea? And the answer is probably given there's no provenience on <laughs> who's maybe doing the kind of looting that ends up potentially feeding into the sort of networks
1: that Hobby Lobby was purchasing.
2: So the idea that Islamic state, like what, who we think of as the Islam, Islamic state now was involved in the antiquities. In this case, it's pretty much zero chance because the, the timing doesn't work out. That's, that's just not what was happening. Right. Um, right. W- it, I, I'm choosing my words carefully because, as yes. you said, there, there's 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 not a lot known, particularly about what's been going on in Iraq and Syria with the yeah. Islamic State, about how much involvement they actually had or not, right. whether just kind of on the surface or you know they're they're, they're I'm going to say they're probably not actually doing the digging.
5: That's um, what we. That's the conclusion. We came to, that's the conclusion we came to in in our, in our interview with Dr. French was. Maybe they were collecting tax on some of these activities, yeah. or, right. but it doesn't seem like it, but, but it's not a significant part. Can you imagine sitting
2: outside in the hot sun to get some cylinder seals out of the ground? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. You know, no, that, that's
5: what we came up
1: with, yeah.
2: But but this the, the, the looting in the region has been problematic for a long time and extremely problematic at certain key points. So um, looting got really quite bad in Iraq after the first Gulf War, so immediately right. after the first. War. And then um, into the later 90s, things got a bit better. Um, the Hussein government um, actually uh, kind of got things a bit better under control, started refunding archaeology, allowed foreign archaeologists back again. the sites were being monitored better. Okay, fast forward a bit to 2000, um, all, all order has fallen apart. Um, the economy drops out. Nobody's in charge of anything. And and pretty much immediately after um, Americans' troops arrive in 2003, looting starts hitting big. And into that summer, you start getting aerial photography and helicopter photographs showing fights being massively looted. Right. And as far as our research has shown, and I should say this is mostly research coming from my colleague, Neil Brody, also on the Trafficking Culture Project, um, up until about 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008, looting was really quite bad in Iraq. This is when uh, uh, unrest was at its height. Um, there was all sorts of conflict and, and unrest there, The and the economy was just kind of in in the gutter. There was no Iraqi economy. And following 2008, things got there, and looting slows down again because people can earn money in some better way than digging holes in the ground in the hot. Um So it's very likely, and I'm going to say this, uh, I'm caging a bit. It's it's very likely that the collection we're talking about, Greens, had um, came out of Iraq at that time. Yeah. That 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 they're they're the product of exactly. They're the product of this looting post two thousand and three, or and before two thousand and eight, and the fact that the the items. We're still in the Middle East, in, in the UAE and so on. This kind of shows that, that that might be the case. It also starts to answer this big question that we've had since that in 2003 and onward, which is where did the stuff go? Yeah.
1: Um,
2: because the, the, there's a lot of this stuff out. Um, clearly, there's holes in the ground. Clearly, there's tons of holes in the ground. Sites were completely looted. But where did it end up? Um, again, Neil Brody's research showed that it wasn't necessarily hitting the open market in any big avalanche. Oh. So where did it go? So maybe the answer is, maybe the answer, as I say again, maybe, right. that it, it got concentrated in these large collections that were just waiting for ice So sitting around in places like somewhere in the UAE, um, waiting for the right person to come along who, say, needed to outfit a whole museum, say, wanted a particular collection of this kind of stuff and was was willing to kind of look the other way uh, about the shady aspects of it
5: and also maybe give a little give a little more time since there was a lot of media attention on the looting
2: right there's been enough time passed or uh, clearly there hasn't enough time passed because this got called out but the perception that you know if this came out around 2003 it sold around 2010-2011 uh it's not as hot anymore and remember 2010-2011 is kind of before this this new ISIS idea, so it wasn't so much in the news. Right. Um, this this uh, the 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 idea that Iraqi antiquities were tainted was still there, kind of had waned just a little bit. So there you could, go.
5: Could it also have tied? I thought you you mentioned two thousand nine. Could it also have tied into the economic the global economic downturn in terms of you know you, you saw you would see this in the thirties with people who were wealthy selling their yeah. stuff off. Because uh, they needed money.
2: Well, see, that sounds like a wonderful story that everybody could have shared in 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 this antiquities dealership about where the objects came from.
1: Oh, yeah. And while terrible.
2: they're not, see that that that's that's one of these false provenances. This is like yeah. an anonymous. Swiss, there's an anonymous Swiss collector who's right. dealing with the an economic downturn and does not want his city known. Yep. So you can buy this stuff on the mm-hmm. cheap. Uh, the, the, yeah. This is where those myths kind. of get built around these ideas of the economic downturn economic downturn seems to be certainly correlated with looting even in non-conflict situations so if you think the lowest level of society who has lost uh, their economic means and so on but it also creates this perfect front this perfect reason that suddenly this huge collection of tablets for sale
3: at the low low price of however many millions you paid
5: (laughs) excellent excellent
3: uh here's a question i have um is there, and this might lead into the, the fake artifacts also getting into the market, this whole concept of like, you know, he's starting this museum, he's obviously going to want certain kinds of artifacts for display. You know, if, is, is there evidence of people hitting the market with a shopping list and these shopping lists being fulfilled? And if so, does that, do we see an uptick in certain kinds of artifacts being looted in these kind of situations? Or is there any way to really tell? I think the answer here is yes. Okay. There are a
2: couple of discrete cases where um, the, the purchasing uh, decisions and the the the, the purchasing orders, the, the, the things a particular collector like, has seemingly um, inspired looting for that kind of object. Okay. So there there was one case, for example, that so and so really likes ancient armor. And then certain sites that might have ancient armor are hit. In the Maya region, of course, this is something that I'm I'm sure you know about. Uh, In the Maya region, this this kind of upturn in the market for Maya vases, in particular people who want to buy Maya vases, seems to have directly inspired the looting of the kind of areas that Maya vases would be found. Mm -hmm. So in this situation, and um, whether this occurred or not, I can't say. I'm, I'm hedging again here. Um, a, a major buyer with a lot of money who is seeking a certain type of object, and in this case, we're talking about objects from biblical regions that have writing on them, so objects yeah. with writing on them, um, seems to inspire looting to fulfill those needs because it trickles down the supply chain. If there's a clear and quite wealthy market for this kind of thing, um, the, where there's a demand, the supply is going to be found. Okay. so. Um, were, were these this collection of objects specifically looted for this guy? Probably not. But um, as a new buyer appears on the set, it is very publicly saying, "I want stuff with with biblical stuff with writing on them." That happens, and that's also where, of course, like you were saying, you get fakes. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you, you get looting to fill this need. You also get fakes to fill this need, because you you might have individuals who want very biblical things, very biblically looking things right. that fulfill this need. And, And there are opportunists who will go for that. How, how
3: much does the fake art industry impact the illegal trade? I think it's a, it's
2: a, it's a huge issue. Um, And indeed uh, the idea of fakes seems to be what buyers actually care about. Um, There, there's a, there's a, strong value in authenticity when we're talking about the ancient past obvious as, as uh, academics, that's an issue. But for actual buyers, they want the real thing. Part of the reason for owning it is touching this This past being part of it. Right. Um, so they're really concerned about buying fakes. And if you look at sales of antiquities, if you look at auction catalogs, if you look at dealerships, their obsession is not with assuring the buyer that this is a legal antiquity. Their obsession is Assuring the buyer that this is an authentic,
1: industry.
2: so it, it's it's a huge market thing. The, the all these um, uh, various scientific techniques that are applied to the object are, are trying to increase the value of the objects on the market, showing they're real. And um, you often get provenance, like the, the most amount of provenance information. So ownership history, any history that shows who owned it previously. That tends to be presented not to show that it's legal, that it left its country of origin after a certain date or after the UNESCO Convention, but to show that it has a history going back to before maybe just the, the type of object is fake. Gotcha. Right. That makes sense. So the obsession seen? on the market is authenticity, yeah. not legality. Gotcha. That helps have you seen? explain
5: some I've shown to my students where they have these statements of where they got it and it's after charter. And I'm like, what are they doing? Like, literally, they're like, oh. <laughs> Oh, we follow UNESCO, and then like we tame this in 19. I'm like, what are you doing? But that, that actually helps answer that. So cool.
1: Yeah, so and it's seen also that? where you
2: see when a lot of these um, intermediaries, these middlemen, these people who are trafficking these antiquities through cleansing them for the market, when they go down, when they get arrested, they often have photographs of the objects that they've dealt with with uh, before they're restored, with dirt on them coming out of the ground, and you think, why do you keep these? Thing. Why on earth are you that right. stupid? But it actually proves real. Hmm. So if you share that, that photograph of it dirty with dirt on it, some pick parts, you're, you're right. actually showing that this is an authentic object. So it, I yeah. think it becomes almost a selling point. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's
0: a conversation for a different podcast, but there's a recent article from Artnet News about uh, what is it? the headline is a staggering 96% of the artifacts in San Francisco's Mexican Museum it may be fake. The report found that of 23 know. of 2,000, the museum's pre-Columbian artifacts could be authentic. Wow. Yeah, yes, I, I, I saw
2: that.
3: I, I'm going to blog about that pretty much the moment we get off the air here. Oh, yeah. over is, that. is that kind of a thing? <laughs> I mean, how should we feel about that?
5: <laughs> um, well, I saw some I'm of the sure, pictures sure, and they I'm were sure hilarious. Jeff can
2: back me up? Yeah, I'm sure yeah. Jeff can back me up, and the answer is not support. Okay,
5: <laughs> so no. I mean, Jeff, I really, he, are they obviously fake? Well, I mean, I, so I went and looked at the pictures. Yeah. I went and looked at the pictures. Some of them, I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, some of them, well, that's that's an amusing bit-looking thing. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of figurines. And, right. yes, yeah, some of them are interesting. <laughs> right mm-hmm.
1: Okay.
0: It's, this, this actually, we've been talking a lot about, you know, provenience. And I think it wouldn't be an archaeological physics podcast if we didn't have a really silly story to, to add to this very serious issue, but uh, th- a few years ago, there was a, a, a video documentary made about the um, the Michigan Relic, yeah. series of fakes from Michigan found late 19th, early 20th centuries. The documentary is called History or Hoax, and they interviewed Wayne May in that documentary. He's the editor of what, Ancient American yeah. Magazine, highly diffusionist, and in that man, oh. in that, his interview, he holds up an oil lamp oh, yeah. that he claimed, that he claims he picked up at an estate sale in virginia or west virginia and he that this is completely unprovenienced and his his impression is that this actually since it was bought by him in west virginia or virginia that's where it was found proving that ancient ancient israelites had been in um, in virginia uh, in antiquity and, and it was it was kind of hilarious but that very oil lamp you can go on a number of websites that sell authentic Oil lamps from the Holy Land, and you can buy them for a couple of hundred bucks. Um, yeah, and wonder, it's in a that that even even when we're talking about really low level traffic in antiquities, this stuff can end without any provenance, without any record of where the hell it came from or where it was purchased. And suddenly you've got somebody claiming, "Well, no, this this actually is evidence of 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 transatlantic visitation <laughs> from the Holy Land two thousand <laughs> years ago." Oh gosh.
2: Oh, <laughs> well, well I, and, but I should you, say. I should say um these mm-hmm. these kind of low level objects, these these tiny lamps and things like that, those those are the big unknown when it comes to antiquity We're we're talking about museum level objects, the, the, the feds right. only go after these really high end objects, but there is a huge undercurrent, there's a huge market for these smaller objects yeah. and I could easily afford, that anybody could easily afford. Right. That are sold online, that are sold um, in small dealerships that represent exactly the same level of archaeological substruction. Right. But are treated as less seriously than the big items. And I feel like there's been not enough research done on that, not enough focus on yeah. that. And uh, anybody's looking for a PhD right there, that's that's well, something to look at. And
5: up. not only not only that, not only is there less attention on them, they're so much easier. I mean I've read it maybe by you or your colleague read of practices where because it's generic oil oil lamp number forty seven need is a copy of the same Export or or customs yeah. or document, and you just change the number because it's another generic oil, oil, right, oil. Right?
2: Yeah, I'm
1: that's, on a website. That's
2: research from uh, Morag Hersel, I should say, okay. at okay. Uh, DePaul University and okay. uh, University of Chicago. Shout out to her work, <laughs> but yeah, that's coming from her research <laughs> in right. uh, Israel.
0: Yeah, I'm on a website right now where for two hundred dollars you can buy a crucifixion.
3: Oh trail. wow! Wow! If that's that turns cool. you off.
5: That's a that's
3: a really fun price. article. One time when I was doing some research for articles I wrote back in the past about, um, there are so many pieces of wood from the quote unquote biblical cross that if you were to put them all together, the cross itself would be something like a hundred feet tall and like astronomically wide. It's there's so many pieces of it.
5: You could build a museum
3: for the cross, right out of the cross, no less. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> There's, there's that faking yeah 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 final thoughts on uh the illegals antiquity trade donna uh it's a vast and difficult thing um
2: but um however much we might criticize in this case the nobody getting jail time or anything i think the publicity around it is really important because time there's a media frenzy around a case like this it becomes more and more difficult for Say a collector to say that they didn't know that this was wrong, it becomes less and less believable. And it kind of makes the, the collecting of antiquities not so socially acceptable. And that's one of my big goals, is to try to change hearts and minds around this. I think that that's what will make a dent in this demand.
3: Uh, Ken, any final thoughts? For sure. No, I'm back on the crucifixion. Those
0: <laughs> make appropriate. Would those make appropriate presents for Christmas, you think? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll just... I'll it there. Ken,
5: too soon. Too,
3: too, too soon. Is this going to be, be your, in your new child's Easter basket? <laughs> oh. <sighs> I'm getting so much hate mail. <laughs> really now. bad. <laughs> yeah. <just laughs>
0: now, this, has been, this has been really important and really great. And yeah. um, uh, it just the know. You know, Hobby Lobby that also we haven't mentioned this. They're the group that has was at the, the core of that case where they want to pay for their uh, what contraception for right. their their um, employees. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is, if they're I mean, if they're really devout, the Ten Commandments are really important, too. Right. And thou shalt not covet mm-hmm. and thou shalt not steal. I think that those are kind of important elements of the, of the Ten Commandments. And yet they seem to have violated both of those. I, I'm just
3: saying. But Ken, but Ken, the greater good. I I, I guess
0: that's what it must be.
3: Jeb, you got final thoughts on this?
5: Uh, I just would like uh, to thank Donna for coming on the show and talking about this. And more important, well, I don't know about more importantly, but at least more importantly for the work I do with my students and so forth. uh, Thank you so much for all your work on trafficking culture. That is a traffickingculture.org is a fantastic resource on all of this. You have case studies, you have links and information on laws, anybody with that out there, anybody who's like, oh, "I don't know this is wrong," I don't know anything about this, uh, is really not a believable person. Right. Thank you. And
0: personally, I think they should give Donna a. She should have her own badge. Own
5: oh, badge. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know, Archaeologists. Walk into places,
1: fl- show that badge. you a cop. You know?
2: Oh, that's great, archaeologist. I had a, in in Bolivia. I had an archaeology card that had my picture on it that was laminated, so it's kind of right. like
5: that. Mm, but
3: then I, same uh, thing. Well, yeah. lamination makes it official. So <laughs> yes.
5: it kind of does. It does. <laughs>
2: but a government
3: you. stamp absolutely donna thank you so much for coming on to the show this has been a great topic i'm sure we will have you back on in the future to clarify something else for us as well so the next scandal I'm yeah, there. Right. <laughs> as you know there will be Let's one there will be one but again thank you so much for coming on to the show and thank you guys for being
4: Ready on the call. As one will call no we don't do a dinosaur.
3: Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by ArcheoSoup Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com slash You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archie Fantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Fantasies. Thanks again for listening.
4: No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs.